Well, good morning. Merry Christmas to you. Yeah, it's nice to see you. Um, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you've uh, carved out time on your busy Christmas Eve celebrations to come join with us in making much of Jesus and, and hearing from his word, talking about him just a little bit. And so just by way of introduction uh, to the sermon this morning, um, my mother and grandmother always used to uh, give us a gift on Christmas Eve, and what they would say is, Christmas Eve gift to you. And so my brother and sister and I would always be excited, and every year we fell for the same stupid trick, but we would always be excited to open a Christmas gift on Christmas Eve and not have to wait till Christmas morning, and our mother or grandmother would say, Christmas Eve gift to you, and then kiss us on the cheek, which I thought was really stupid. Um... Because the last thing you want as like an 11-year-old, right, is I'm excited to get a gift and all you get is a kiss from your grandmother. That's, that's silly, right? That's silly. And I think my mom and grandmother giggled in private about how they love to torture us, but that's beside the point. Uh, the point is, I was thinking this week about world's worst Christmas gifts. And so I Googled world's worst Christmas gifts. And so I wanted to share some of those with you this morning. Is that all right? And, and I just want you to know that I have actually purchased these items for Amy, my wife, this year. Uh, so please do not disclose that to her. She's back in the green room, and so please don't tell her that I've actually purchased uh, these items for her. The first of which are sauna pants. Sauna pants, uh, so you don't have to sit in a regular sauna. You can actually put these shorts on and heat up your midsection and sweat like crazy. Like, tell me that's not stupid. Like, does someone have sauna pants, by the way? I'm sorry if you do. Like, also tell me these are not reusable. Because those have got to be ripe after a little while, don't you think? All right, sauna pants. Here's another horrible Christmas gift. Is uh, Next one here is a fat magnet. This thing, <laughs> these are real products, by the way. You can actually buy these things. This thing, it says, look it. Fat magnet makes meals healthier. Simply freeze, freeze the fat magnet, then skim the surface of your food. And it removes fat, cholesterol, and calories instantly. Just bang, it's all gone. It makes anything you want totally and completely healthy. You got a Twinkie, just wave that fat magnet over the top of it, and it will be healthy when you're done. As part of my new commitment to health and wellness this year, I've actually purchased a number of these myself. Um, the, next, the next Christmas gift up here is a, is a shotgun holder for your bedside. <clears throat> uh, I did actually get this for Amy uh, because we are... Uh, American, and um, that's what we do. I, when I saw this image online, I uh, the, literally the first thing you got to forgive me here, but the first thing that went through my head is, what kind of messed up life situation do you find yourself in, where you feel compelled to be kind of ever on the ready, whilst sleeping, in case someone comes to your front door and you need to access a shotgun immediately, like. Maybe you don't need to be purchasing that for yourself. Maybe you need to be reevaluating some of your life decisions. You know what I mean? Because you are in a bad way in your life if you need a shotgun at your bedside. Um, what we're talking about a little bit this morning is uh, sometimes, and I don't know about you, but, but you don't always know what you need until somebody shows you what you need. 
And I'm not talking about, you know, fat magnet or the, or the gun rack for your mattress. I'm talking about sometimes, you ever been in a situation where someone has given you a gift or you've seen something on TV or you've seen something in the mall and all of a sudden it, it makes your life easier, makes your life better. It solves a problem that you didn't even know you had and you're going, I just didn't even know there was a product for that and it's going to change the way I think and feel and act and be. You don't always know what you need until someone shows you what you need. And so we're just saying those words, long lay the world in sin and error, pining. And one of the errors of our ways in terms of the world, in terms of your ways and, and my ways, is that we are not just unable to meet our own spiritual need, but we are unable to see our own spiritual need. We're unable to see it, to put our finger on it, until God reveals it to us. And what it leaves us to is our own devices. It leaves us to exalting ourselves as God. It leaves us to trying to medicate our pain and uh, fulfill our spiritual longings with success or position or money or whatever. Some things are morally bad things. Some things morally neutral things. Sometimes even morally good things that we exalt to the place of a God in order to fulfill this spiritual longing. And until God reveals to us the error of our ways, we are left pining in our own sin. You see, we don't always know what we need until somebody shows us. So, so that kind of principle is going to be our guiding principle for uh, the talk this morning. And, and the second guiding principle that, that's going to kind of shape what we're talking about here is, is, is and you've heard it before, and um, it, it's just as true now as when it was very first spoken. And it's this notion that uh, unless you learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Have you heard that before? Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So here's what I want to do uh, this morning with our time remaining. I want to walk you through a quick history of our spiritual, shared spiritual longings as human beings. I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story of God's redemptive plan. I want to tell you a story of what he's been up to in the world and the ways in which humanity has over and over and over again failed to meet our own spiritual longing. In fact, failed to even put our finger on our own, own spiritual longing. And I want to do that so that you will learn from history so you don't perpetuate it. So that you will learn from history and God might reveal to you your needs such that we all walk out of here and together say, you know what, all I really want for Christmas is Jesus. That's really all I really want, all I really need. So I would uh, beg for your mercy here and your grace. For some of you, this might be familiar. For some of you, it might be unfamiliar. And so you're going to have to really tune in here because it is an epic story. And it begins where every epic story begins. It begins in the beginning. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. And God simply spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. He divided the light from the dark, and he called the light day, and he called the dark night. He divided the waters, and he created dry land, and he made vegetation and animals and plants. He put fish in the sea and birds in the air. He created the sun, the moon, stars, the cosmos, and he came to the crown jewel of his creation, which he made in his own image, first man, and gave him first woman, and placed the two of them in a perfect situation in a garden, and said to them, have sex and make babies, you're already naked, makes it easier, one less thing to think about, I guess, and fill the earth and populate the earth, and he also said to create culture, fill the earth and subdue it, learn, grow, enjoy me, enjoy one another, one thing is don't eat of that tree. And listen, this is not a heavy-handed command of God, is it? I mean, it's just one tree, stay away from that one tree, but first man, Adam, 
could not stay away from the tree. He fell into temptation. He did not pass the test in the garden. And because he did not pass the test in the garden, he imparted to us, those who are his descendants, this notion of sin, this notion of rebellion, this notion of disconnection from God. He passed on sin to us because he failed his test in the garden. It shows up immediately, in fact, when Adam and Eve have children, their names are Cain and Abel. Abel offered a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. Cain offered a sacrifice that was not acceptable to God. So Cain became jealous of his brother Abel. So Cain's way to solve that was to kill his brother, and so he did. He slaughtered his brother. The Bible tells us that Abel's blood cried out from the ground in order to condemn Cain. Fast forward a number of generations, there's a man named Abraham, and he's living in relative comfort and relative wealth. He had family, he had flocks, he had herds, he had all the things that were markers of wealth in that day, and he had lands and family. And God spoke to him and he said, Abraham, I want a people for myself, a people that I can love, treasure, care for, wrap my arms around, and so I need you to leave the familiar, I need you to leave what you're used to, I need you to pack up and move, and get this, God says, to a place that I will show you. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't tell Abraham where he's going. He doesn't tell him what it's going to be like when he gets there. He just says, you start walking and then I'll let you know. And so Abraham left all that was comfortable for him, all that he knew. He left it in order to obey God so that God could have a people for himself. The son that God gave Abraham was a little boy named Isaac. He was the son of promise by which God would fulfill his promise to make Abraham's descendants like the sands on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. And one day God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham says, wait, 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 wait. The son that you gave me, the son that you promised me, the son that was going to give me all these descendants, the son of promise? God said, yes. So Abraham obeyed. He collected his son, he collected sticks for an altar, he walked up to the top of the mount, he placed his son on the altar, and just before the knife was to plunge into his son, God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, stop what you're doing, for now I know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. That son, Isaac, would grow up and have a couple of children. They didn't get along all that well, and they would have grandchildren. One of those grandchildren was a man named Joseph. You might have heard of him in his amazing Technicolor dream coat. Uh, He had 11 brothers, and they didn't like him very much because he was their dad's favorite. And so instead of killing him, these uh, cowards sold him into slavery. They sold him to an Egyptian convoy that took him back to Egypt. And instead of telling their father that they had sold him into slavery, they cut up that coat of many colors, covered it with blood, brought it to their father and said, sorry, but your favorite son was killed by a wild animal. Tough break. Joseph got to Egypt and he started as a slave and he worked his way up and worked his way up and he went to prison and he ran households and unfairly and unjustly went to prison. And finally, after 50 years, Joseph was now the right-hand man for the Pharaoh in Egypt, the king in Egypt, and a famine hit the land of Egypt. And so these Israelites that didn't have any food and didn't have any water had to go ask neighboring countries for help. And so Joseph's 11 brothers, came to Egypt, got an audience before the Pharaoh's right-hand man, and asked him to help them with food. What they didn't know 
is that that right-hand man they were asking was their very brother, Joseph. It had been 50 years. He was now dressed in royalty and not in rags like he was when they saw him 50 years before. And instead of condemning his brothers or killing his brothers, Joseph interceded for his brothers on their behalf before the king and cared for them and sustained them and gave them the food and the water that they needed. That Pharaoh, who loved and cherished and showed preference to God's people, ended up dying. And generations later, another Pharaoh would come to power that didn't like the people of God and the descendants of Abraham. And so he enslaved them in Egypt. And God called a man named Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, you have to let my people go. Pharaoh was stubborn. It took 10 plagues in order for him to finally release those people. And the last plague was uh, a killing of the firstborn in Egypt. Every firstborn male in the household, human households and animal households, was taken by the angel of God. But God spoke to his people and said, sacrifice a lamb, a perfect lamb. Take that lamb's blood. Wipe it on the doorposts of your house so that when the angel of death comes, the angel of death will pass over your homes and you and your children will be spared. God provided a perfect lamb so that his death would not pass over, or death would not enter into those households and pass over those households. Eventually, Pharaoh let God's people go. Moses led them toward the promised land and mediated between them and God a covenant, a covenant of God's grace and mercy and love and tenderness and kindness for his people. And before leading them into the promised land, Moses turned uh, power in Israel, leadership in Israel, over to his successor, a man named Joshua. And Joshua would eventually lead God's people into the promised land. Once they were there in the promised land, they established a sacrificial system by which a priest would go in and offer a lamb on behalf of the people, uh, on behalf of their sins, so they could be cleansed. Uh, they established a system of priests whereby an individual from the tribe of Levi would be able to go before God and be God's voice to the people and be the people's voice to God so that they could interact with him and intercede for them. Once the nation of Israel had established the sacrificial system in the tabernacle, once they had established the priesthood, once they were in the promised land, God raised up a king named David. And God promised to David an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. And while David was on the throne, David won victory after victory after victory, and the people didn't do much of anything. See, their victory was David's victory. He imparted and passed on his own victories to God's people because of God's grace and because of God's mercy. David's son Solomon would build a temple, a massive temple to honor God such that the people of God could enter into the temple, worship him, interact with him, love him, sacrifice to him, and have a relationship with him. And yet, the people of God rebelled. They continued to reject. They continued to run away. But God was so merciful and so gracious because he never annihilated his people. He never deleted his people and said, I'm just going to start over. He always saved a remnant. And so when an evil, wicked man named Haman wanted to uh, commit genocide and kill all of the Jews, God sent his servant 
Esther to be the wife to the king and at the risk of her own life entered into the king's chambers and said, save God's people, save a remnant. And so God did so. He saved his people through Esther. Job was one of the characters in the Old Testament, an innocent sufferer. Satan uh, tore him back to nothing, to the very basics of who he was, took family and flocks and herds and money and everything you could possibly imagine. And Job suffered innocently at the hands of the wicked one. And, and when his friends told him to do stupid stuff, and he had some stupid friends, Job interceded on behalf of his stupid friends for their salvation. One of God's prophets, a man named Jonah, he was told to go to Nineveh and tell people to repent so that God would show favor on them. And instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah ran the other way. God on a boat was out in the middle of the ocean and God sent a storm to let Jonah know, I'm not happy that you ran the other way. And the people on the boat said, what in the world is this storm? What is happening here? What's going on? Jonah said, it's me. It's because I'm on the boat. God has sent this storm. And he was cast out into the water so that the people on the boat could be saved. God sent more prophets, Malachi, Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, over and over and over, speaking the word of the Lord to God's people saying, come back and repent and restore and renew and I'll forgive and pray and I will heal your land and I will be good to you. And over and over and over the people said, sure we will, and then they didn't. Sure we will, and then they didn't. It was about this time in the nation of Israel that they began to see themselves as God's vine, God's vineyard that was supposed to bear fruit to the world. But the prophets over and over said, you may be a vineyard, but you're not bearing fruit. You may be a vine, but you're dying. In fact, you're all the way dead. And with Malachi, the last prophet, the very last prophet, God's voice went silent. And for 400 years, there was no voice of God in the world, no light in the darkness, no hope, until Jesus entered the picture. You see, I tell you that story not because I wanted you to be caught up on Old Testament history, but so that we would understand God's redemptive plan through a different lens. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but then in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Keep going. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, here's what the author of Hebrews is saying, that God spoke by his prophets. God spoke through the temple. God spoke through the sacrificial system. God spoke through the system of priests. God spoke through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. God spoke through all of these things, but now he sent his son as the fulfillment of all that, not just the fulfillment of spoken prophecy, but the fulfillment of every picture and image that we have of ancient times and from the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of 
every longing. He is the answer to every question. From him and to him and through him are all things. He is the exact imprint of God, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. When we pause at Christmas, we don't just pause to celebrate a baby born in a manger. We pause to celebrate that Jesus is the true and better Adam. Whereas Adam failed his test in the garden and through him we inherited sin, Jesus passed his test in the garden and through him we inherit righteousness. Jesus is the true and better Abel, whereas Abel's blood cried out from the ground to condemn his brother, Jesus' blood cries out from the ground for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who left the familiarity of heaven and the comfort of heaven and the radiance of God's glory. He left all of that behind to go to a foreign land. That's here, us, earth, into human history in order to save and ransom a people that God would have for himself that he could wrap his arms around. Listen really closely now. Jesus is the true and better Isaac because God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you would not withhold your son, your only son from me. We can look at God and say, now we know that, we love, that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from us. Jesus is the better priest that doesn't have to go in over and over to offer sacrifices for us, but he's our great high priest able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses that stands between us and God once and for all. Jesus is the better Joshua who didn't just lead God's people into a temporary promised land, but he leads God's people into, into an eternal rest that's available for all of us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who interceded for or the brothers, you and I, that betrayed him and sold him into slavery. And rather than bringing condemnation for us, he brought grace and sustenance and goodness and intercedes for us at the right hand of the king. Jesus is the true and better Moses. He mediates a new covenant between us and God. Jesus is the true and better sacrificial Passover lamb because he was slain for us. And when his blood is smeared on the doorposts of our lives, God's death and wrath passes over our homes and lives. Jesus is the true and better, Esther, who risked his life for the sake of God's people. Jesus is the true and better Job, the innocent sufferer who intercedes on behalf of his stupid friends, even though we give him really bad advice. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the darkness and cast out into the water such that we could be saved. Jesus is the true and better prophet, not just speaking the words of God, but he is the very word of God. Jesus is the true and better David, the king on the throne for eternity. Jesus is the true and better temple, not a physical place that we have to go to to meet with God, but a spiritual place that inhabits our hearts so that we can know God well. Jesus is the true and better vine, whereas Israel did not bear fruit for Christ or bear fruit for God. Jesus bore or the fruit that we could not bear on our behalf and gives it to us. And finally, Jesus is the true and better light. When the world went dark for 400 years, when there was no hope, when there was no life and no voice of God, John writes this, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
I wonder if uh, this morning you came to church hoping somebody would tell you how to get more peace in your life or get more joy in your life or uh, help make your life better. Um, sorry. <laughs> Come back at Easter. Maybe it'll be better. Uh, what I wanted you to know this morning is that Christ is exalted. He's the fulfillment of everything that God promised. He's the answer to every question you've ever had. He's the solution to every problem that you've ever had. He is the key that unlocks the very heart of God. He, he is everything. He is everything. He is the true light. I mean, it's just funny to me uh, at Christmas time when you walk around, you know, there's like convenience stores that I walk into and there's a little nativity scene set up. It's like, that's cool. I, I like that. But so much more than that. This is the very God man born into the world to bring hope and healing where we were desperate and simply in our sin and error pining. Christ is exalted. Christ is the only answer. Christ and Christ alone. As we conclude our service uh, this morning, we're going to participate in kind of a a tradition a little bit uh, that has become part of what we do on Christmas Eve, and it's a candle lighting service. Uh, I, I would invite you to grab your candle, and as we do that, uh, he, here's what we are trying to display as we light our candles together, that the true light came into the world, and that light gives life and light to all men and women. So what's going to happen is the band's going to come back up and lead us in a song. I'm going to light my candle, and Light the candle of, of those on platform and then your candles as well. And I hope that in this uh, tradition you would see a picture of what God has done at Christmas time. Send light into, sent light into the world, his light that brings light to all men. Let's stand and sing and we'll light our candles together.